0: Section 36 of Volume 1f of History of England, From the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jim Dennison history of england from the invasion of julius caesar to the revolution of sixteen eighty eight by david hume volume one f section thirty six chapter seventy part one chapter seventy james the second the first act of james's reign was to assemble the privy council where after some praises bestowed on the memory of his predecessor he made professions of his resolution to maintain the established government, both in church and state. Though he had been reported, he said, to have imbibed arbitrary principles, he knew that the laws of England were sufficient to make him as great a monarch as he could wish, and he was determined never to depart from them. And as he had heretofore ventured his life in defense of the nation, he would still go as far as any man in maintaining all its just rights and liberties. This discourse was received with great applause, not only by the council, but by the nation. The king universally passed for a man of great sincerity and great honor, and as the current of favor ran at that time for the court, men believed that his intentions were conformable to his expressions. We have now, it was said, the word of a king and a word never yet broken. Addresses came from all quarters, full of duty, nay, of the most servile adulation. Every one hastened to pay court to the new monarch, and James had reason to think that, notwithstanding the violent efforts made by so potent a party for his exclusion, no throne in Europe was better established than that of England. The king, however, in the first exercise of his authority, showed that either he was not sincere in his professions of attachment to the laws, or that he had entertained so lofty an idea of his own legal power, that even his utmost sincerity would tend very little to secure the liberties of the people. All the customs and the greater part of the excise had been settled by Parliament on the late king during life. And consequently the grant was now expired, nor had the successor any right to levy these branches of revenue. But James issued a proclamation, ordering the customs and excise to be paid as before, and this exertion of power he would not deign to qualify by the least act or even appearance of condescension. It was proposed to him that, in order to prevent the ill effects of any intermission in levying these duties, entries should be made, and bonds for the sums be taken from the merchants and brewers but the payment be suspended till the parliament should give authority to receive it this precaution was recommended as an expression of deference to that assembly or rather to the laws but for that very reason probably it was rejected by the king who thought that the commons would thence be invited to assume more authority and would regard the whole revenue and consequently the whole power of the crown as dependent on their good will and pleasure the king likewise went openly and with all the ensigns of his dignity to mass an illegal meeting and by this imprudence he displayed at once his arbitrary disposition and the bigotry of his principles these two great characteristics of his reign and bane of his administration he even sent Carroll as his agent to rome in order to make submissions to the pope and to pave the way for a solemn readmission of England into the bosom of the Catholic Church. The Pope, Innocent XI, prudently advised the king not to be too precipitate in his measures, nor rashly attempt what repeated experience might convince him was impracticable. The Spanish ambassador, Ronquillo, deeming the tranquility of England necessary for the support of Spain, used the freedom to make like remonstrances. He observed to the king how busy the priest appeared at court, and advised him not to assent with too great facility to their dangerous counsels. "'Is it not the custom in Spain,' said James, for the king to consult with his confessor?" "'Yes,' replied the ambassador, "'and it is for that very reason our affairs succeed so ill.'" James gave hopes on his accession that he would hold the balance of power more steadily than his predecessor and that France, instead of rendering England subservient to her ambitious projects, would now meet with strong opposition from that kingdom. Besides applying himself to business with industry, he seemed jealous of national honor, and expressed great care that no more respect should be paid to the French ambassador at London than his own received at Paris but these appearances were not sufficiently supported and he found himself immediately under the necessity of falling into a union with that great monarch who by his power as well as his zeal seemed alone able to assist him in the projects formed for promoting the catholic religion in england notwithstanding the king's prejudices all the chief offices of the crown continued still in the hands of protestants rochester was treasurer his brother Claringdon Chamberlain, Godolphin Chamberlain to the Queen, Sunderland Secretary of State, Halifax President of the Council. This nobleman had stood in opposition to James during the last years of his brother's reign, and when he attempted, on the accession, to make some apology for his late measures, the King told him that he would forget everything past except his behavior during the Bill of Exclusion. On other occasions, however, James appeared not of so forgiving a temper. When the principal exclusionists came to pay their respects to the new sovereign, they either were not admitted or were received very coldly, sometimes even with frowns. This conduct might suit the character which the king so much affected, of sincerity, but by showing that a king of England could resent the quarrels of a duke of York, he gave his people no high idea either of his lenity or magnanimity. On all occasions the king was open in declaring that men must now look for a more active and more vigilant government, and that he would retain no ministers who did not practice an unreserved obedience to his commands. We are not indeed to look for the springs of his administration so much in his council and chief officers of state as in his own temper, and in the character of those persons with whom he secretly consulted. The queen had great influence over him, a woman of spirit, whose conduct had been popular till she arrived at that high dignity. She was much governed by the priests, especially the Jesuits, and as these were also the king's favorites, all public measures were taken originally from the suggestions of these men, and bore evident marks of their ignorance in government, and of the violence of their religious zeal the king however had another attachment seemingly not very consistent with his devoted regard to his queen and to his priest it was to mrs sedley whom he soon after created countess of dorchester and who expected to govern him with the same authority which the duchess of portsmouth had possessed during the former reign but james who had entertained the ambition of converting his people was told that the regularity of his life ought to correspond to the sanctity of his intentions and he was prevailed with to remove mrs sedley from court a resolution in which he had not the courage to persevere good agreement between the mistress and the confessor of princes is not commonly a difficult matter to compass but in the present case these two potent engines of command were found very incompatible Mrs. Sedley, who possessed all the wit and ingenuity of her father, Sir Charles, made the priest and their counsels the perpetual objects of her raillery, and it is not to be doubted but they, on their part, redoubled their exhortations with their penitent to break off so criminal an attachment. How little inclination soever the king, as well as his queen and priest, might bear to an English parliament! It was absolutely necessary at the beginning of the reign to summon that assembly. The low condition to which the Whigs, or country party, had fallen during the last years of Charles's reign, the odium under which they labored on account of the Rye House conspiracy, these causes made that party meet with little success in the elections. The general resignation, too, of the charters had made the corporations extremely dependent, and the recommendations of the court, though little assisted at that time by pecuniary influence were become very prevalent the new house of commons therefore consisted almost entirely of zealous tories and churchmen and were of consequence strongly biassed by their affections in favor of the measures of the crown the discourse which the king made to the parliament was more fitted to work on their fears than their affections he repeated indeed and with great solemnity the promise which he had made before the privy council of governing according to the laws and of preserving the established religion but at the same time he told them that he positively expected they would settle his revenue and during life too as in the time of his brother i might use many arguments said he to enforce this demand the benefit of trade the support of the navy the necessities of the crown and the well-being of the government itself, which I must not suffer to be precarious. But I am confident that your own consideration, and your sense of what is just and reasonable, will suggest to you whatever on this occasion might be enlarged upon. There is indeed one popular argument," added he, which may be urged against compliance with my demand. Men may think that by feeding me from time to time with such supplies as they think convenient, they will better secure frequent meetings of Parliament. But as this is the first time I speak to you from the throne, I must plainly tell you that such an expedient would be very improper to employ with me, and that the best way to engage me, to meet you often, is always to use me well." It was easy to interpret this language of the King's. He plainly intimated that he had resources in his prerogative for supporting the government independent of their supplies and that so long as they complied with his demands he would have recourse to them but that any ill usage on their part would set him free from those measures of government which he seemed to regard more as voluntary than as necessary it must be confessed that no parliament in england was ever placed in a more critical situation nor where more forcible arguments could be urged either for their opposition to the court or their compliance with it it was said on the one hand that jealousy of royal power was the very basis of the english constitution and the principle to which the nation was beholden for all that liberty which they enjoy above the subjects of other monarchies that this jealousy though at different periods it may be more or less intense can never safely be laid asleep even under the best and wisest princes, that the character of the present sovereign afforded cause for the highest vigilance, by reason of the arbitrary principles which he had imbibed, and still more by reason of his religious zeal, which it is impossible for him ever to gratify without assuming more authority than the Constitution allows him, that power is to be watched in its very first encroachments, nor is anything ever gained by timidity and submission that every concession adds new force to usurpation and at the same time by discovering the dastardly dispositions of the people inspires it with new courage and enterprise that as arms were entrusted altogether in the hands of the prince no check remained upon him but the dependent condition of his revenue a security therefore which it would be the most egregious folly to abandon that all the other barriers which of late years have been erected against arbitrary power would be found without this capital article to be rather pernicious and destructive that new limitations in the constitution stimulated the monarch's inclination to surmount the laws and required frequent meetings of parliament in order to repair all the breaches which either time or violence may have made upon that complicated fabric. That recent experience during the reign of the late king, a prince who wanted neither prudence nor moderation, had sufficiently proved the solidity of all these maxims. That his parliament, having rashly fixed his revenue for life, and at the same time repealed the triennial bill, found that they themselves were no longer of importance and that liberty not protected by national assemblies was exposed to every outrage and violation and that the more openly the king made an unreasonable demand the more obstinately ought it to be refused since it is evident that his purpose in making it cannot possibly be justifiable on the other hand it was urged that the rule of watching the very first encroachments of power could only have place where the opposition to it could be regular peaceful and legal that though the refusal of the king's present demand might seem of this nature yet in reality it involved consequences which led much further than at first sight might be apprehended that the king in his speech had intimated that he had resources in his prerogative which, in case of opposition from Parliament, he thought himself fully entitled to employ. That if the Parliament openly discovered an intention of reducing him to dependence, matters must presently be brought to a crisis at a time the most favorable to his cause which his most sanguine wishes could ever have promised him. That if we cast our eyes abroad to the state of affairs on the continent, and to the situation of Scotland and Ireland, or, what is of more importance, if we consider the disposition of men's minds at home, every circumstance would be found adverse to the cause of liberty, that the country party, during the late reign, by their violent and, in many respects, unjustifiable measures in Parliament, by their desperate attempts out of Parliament, had exposed their principles to general hatred, and had excited extreme jealousy in all the royalist and zealous churchmen, who now formed the bulk of the nation. THAT IT WOULD NOT BE ACCEPTABLE TO THAT PARTY TO SEE THIS KING WORSE TREATED THAN HIS BROTHER IN POINT OF REVENUE, OR ANY ATTEMPTS MADE TO KEEP THE CROWN IN DEPENDENCE, THAT THEY THOUGHT PARLIAMENTS AS LIABLE TO ABUSE AS COURTS, AND DESIRED NOT TO SEE THINGS IN A SITUATION WHERE THE KING COULD NOT, IF HE FOUND IT NECESSARY, EITHER PROROGUE OR DISSOLVE THOSE assemblies that if the present Parliament, by making great concessions, could gain the King's confidence and engage him to observe the promises now given them, everything would by gentle methods succeed to their wishes, that if, on the contrary, after such instances of compliance, he formed any designs on the liberty and religion of the nation, he would, in the eyes of all mankind, render himself altogether inexcusable and the whole people would join in opposition to him. That resistance could scarcely be attempted twice, and there was therefore the greater necessity for waiting till time and incidents had fully prepared the nation for it. That the king's prejudices in favor of popery, though in the main pernicious, were yet so far fortunate that they rendered the connection inseparable between the national religion and national liberty, And that if any illegal attempts were afterwards made the church which was at present the chief support of the crown would surely catch the alarm and would soon dispose the people to an effectual resistance these last reasons enforced by the prejudices of party prevailed in parliament and the commons besides giving thanks for the king's speech voted unanimously that they would settle on his present majesty during life all the revenue enjoyed by the late king at the time of his demise that they might not detract from this generosity by any symptoms of distrust they also voted unanimously that the house entirely relied on his majesty's royal word and repeated declarations to support the religion of the church of england but they added that that religion was dearer to them than their lives. The Speaker, in presenting the revenue bill, took care to inform the King of their vote with regard to religion, but could not, by so signal a proof of confidence, extort from him one word in favor of that religion, on which, he told His Majesty, they set so high a value. Notwithstanding the grounds of suspicion which this silence afforded, The House continued in the same liberal disposition. The King, having demanded a further supply for the navy and other purposes, they revived those duties on wines and vinegar which had once been enjoyed by the late King, and they added some impositions on tobacco and sugar. This grant amounted on the whole to about six hundred thousand pounds a year. The House of Lords were in a humor no less compliant. They even went some lengths towards breaking in pieces all the remains of the popish plot, that once formidable engine of bigotry and faction. End of section 36. Chapter 70. Part 1. Recording by Jim Denison, J I M D E N I S O N Voice. dot com.